coffee drinkers, I heard you loud and clear in the Telegram channel and, and other places. Uh, coffee drinkers still a thing, so uh, on it rolls for the podcast. And uh, hello, coffee drinkers, bass players, musicians around the world. Been deep in it, deep in thought, in mental preparation to record, in, in musical preparation to record as well, of course. But I think less so in musical preparation uh, in, in proportion to the mental side than I have been maybe ever before, which is new for me. And I've been checking out a lot of interviews, a lot of insight, a lot of kind of philosophies of people I respect, people who I consider to be um, innovative, who just kind of get it done. Um, that that kind of title uh, fits Seth Godin um, probably better than anyone anyone I follow and I was uh, recently watching a little interview with him I got to give a shout out to Behind the Brand I guess is the YouTube channel um, I don't know them so I can't say hey they're the best at this that and the other but they have Seth Godin here and they did this awesome interview uh, this was back in about a year ago January of 2021 and I want to play you just a snippet of it because it's very it's very apt kind of uh, as I think about doing the work and kind of going into this process. So they're basically asking Seth, you know, well, I'll let them, I'll let them ask and you can listen a couple of seconds and uh, get his answer and then we'll dive in. And then how, how often are you wrong? How often are you wrong is the question. If I'm working hard, I'm wrong almost every single day, sometimes several times a day. Uh, behind me in all these videos, you see bookshelves, most of the books on these bookshelves are filled with projects I did that didn't work. And uh, I'm good enough to double down on the ones that do work, that it looks like I'm right a lot. 7,000 blog posts, half of them are below average. And 140 podcasts, some of them aren't as good as the other ones. I work for hours on something that's perfectly polished. I go here, they say, nah, nah, nah. and then I do something because I'm on deadline and I pop it off in eight minutes and people think it's the greatest thing I ever did. I don't know. I don't know. That's a, that's, yeah. <laughs> I don't have 7,000 blog posts. Uh, I might have 140 podcast episodes at this point. Interesting. Some of which I think I've either lost or maybe taken down. I don't know, but um, definitely don't have 7,000 blog posts. I'm definitely not an Amazon or New York Times bestselling author of 20 something plus books. Although, although I do have a lot of books out there at this point, but there are certain things that Seth said right there in that short clip um, and says throughout the interview that really sort of ring home uh, and sort of no more so than right now as I prepare to go you know, once again do the work without knowing with kind of zero like I keep saying zero um, commercial aspiration in order to try and you know be honest and not be worried about making something that I think somebody will like to hear uh, more so making something that I really want to make and truly believe in and is kind of a collaborative effort between me and the musicians and you know just everyone involved in making the record and who knows it could be the biggest failure 
of my career to date and or it could be the thing that people say oh this is the greatest thing you've ever done like seth said or, or i could even think oh man this is <laughs> even worse though right like if i think like whoa i think this is the best thing i've ever done and then everyone's like dude what were you thinking this is horrible so okay i know i'm talking in extremes there and i'm not doing that for uh for pity <laughs> or effect or anything i'm doing that to highlight the range of actual emotion that is going through my my thoughts as you know like i said maybe preparing a little bit better for this one but as i have always done when i go into things like that um and sometimes the preparation isn't project specific i think sometimes it's uh it's kind of a maintenance thing that's constantly bubbling away. You, I mean, I'm constantly working on what it is, who I am, and how I, you know, how I work. And sometimes a high point of that, that you know, that just ha happens to coincide with a project that I'm doing, and the things line up, and it comes out, it comes out well. Um, with the recent, you know, the, yesterday uh, was the what the 18th and the day before the 17th that, that's a 10-year anniversary of it only happens once record i made in new york with jojo mayer mark juliana um uh, john ellis justin vasquez tim miller you know john davis at the controls uh mixing and engineering and, and all that stuff and uh I, I talked about it briefly in the last episode when i kind of did the discography history kind of rundown but this was you know 10 years um and it was interesting, like I, I, like I said, I think before, I, I don't ever go and listen to my own music ever. Like I don't sit here and listen to, oh man, remember this thing from 15 years ago, let's check that out, see how it stands up. Not at all. But the fact that I was like making little clips and, and put, dragging out that terribly edited rough, uh, rough cut of the documentary and putting it on YouTube, um, I got to kind of listen to a little bit more than i you know than i would would have done normally and uh to my ear it still kind of stood um it stood up as a recording and i was like oh yeah okay there were there were things about that and about the process of making that record bear in mind it was completely improvised i went to the studio with zero written material and um you know it, it came out okay and there's still like eight or nine hours of recorded music in the can I'm kind of curious to go that you know stuff that just some of it maybe even didn't really get listened to that much because there was so much to get through so at some point I'll do like a box set and there'll be some bonus tracks and maybe I'll master some of it for vinyl and there'll be some things that people have never heard in there before so that that'll be a cool thing but there were just you know not the actual music itself but just remembering the process of what we were doing what headspace I was in and how kind of open and honest I was, uh, despite the fact that I slammed a New York taxi sliding door on my hand the night after the first sessions and then had to go back to the studio the next day basically with a broken right hand swollen up the size of a, I don't know, baseball or something. It was pretty bad. You can see in the documentary I'm wearing like this bandage and my right hand is all swollen. So there were a multitude of factors going on um and a lot of moving parts but the kind of underlying feeling of it was that it was like super relaxed super laid back very open-minded the right musicians that's always key the right personnel the right people in the room at the right time people you trust to have done the work you know again not project specific you know they were not 
you know, they, there was no music to prepare. I couldn't send them demos and charts and like stuff to learn. They were not showing up ready to play my music. Um, they were showing, <laughs> they weren't showing up ready to play my music. They were showing up ready to play my music. Um, they just didn't know what it was yet. And, uh, yeah. So first of all, I'm like forever grateful to, to even be like have those people's numbers in my phone book, uh, first of all, and to be able to be around them and make music like that. That's pretty awesome experience. I highly recommend it. If you can, if you have someone like that, that you look up to and, uh, or people like that musicians that you look up to that you dig, definitely try everything you can to get around them. Um, and then, trying to reframe that right now like i don't want to make an album that sounds anything like that but i definitely want to be in a place where what happens in the studio in spain next month ends up being something that i can say "Mm, this was honestly a representation of this time of this musical time in my life and while i'm trying to get to that headspace i'm also trying to factor in like Okay, so I haven't been on tour in a couple of years. I uh, haven't really played live, um, you know, aside from a few gigs at the, at the um, Baked Potato with Bob. Really haven't cut my chops or, or kind of don't have that sort of, uh, don't have that sort of like comforting foundational feeling. You know, I, if you're a musician that plays a lot of gigs or you go on the road, I'm sure you know that feeling of like, even if you practice a lot, I notice this when I go on the road. I do practice a lot in general. I like to keep my, my stuff in shape. I like to be loose and, you know, have options. But even if I'm practicing a lot, like four, five, six hours a day before a tour for a few weeks, and I get on a tour, the first night is always kind of, it's tough, you know, to get through it, you know, without cramping or without like, you know, I, and I don't think it's not, I don't think it's necessarily a fact that I don't have the chops. I actually think that I do. I'm sure you do as well. It's that that um, ability to relax into the gig and not play with so much tension in your playing. I think that's what exhausts you too fast. Um, but either way, the first few nights of the tour are very telling, and I learn a lot from them. And by like the third or fourth night, my chops feel like my calluses or my picking hand feel like leather, which is amazing. That's when I get the best sound. And I'm able to get to the whole range of my instrument really easily and, you know, manifest ideas at will. So, yeah, I don't have any of that in my back pocket right now. You know, ideally, I like to go to the studio having just come off some, you know, regular playing, whether that's a tour or whether it's kind of a lot of gigs in a row, especially if you can do it with the band that you're recording with. Um, So now we have all of these factors which don't, necessarily at least on paper lend themselves to you know being in the right frame of mind being in that right place to record and to do your you know your best work so it's a different kind of preparation and um listening to seth godin who i've interviewed by the way there is a podcast episode with seth on it it's on itunes spotify all the podcasts these are all the podcast aggregators um so i'll stop i'll post a link to that maybe i'll post a little reminder on instagram stories or something with a link to that episode great episode he has so much great insight especially for musicians as well he's such a music fan and kind of knows about he's not just like seth godin the book guy the purple cow and tribes and all of that stuff he knows a lot about music and how his world relates with the music world and marketing and all that stuff so listening to him 
you know, just about process, regardless of the industry that he or I or we are in, is very, very interesting. And that, you know, he's trying and working so hard every day and such a, a high number of things that he does are not successful. Um, and that doesn't mean he's bad, like, because he's obviously amazing at what he does. It just means even operating at that level we're talking like i don't know he he invented permission marketing basically the email list and he's he's been at the forefront of a lot of movements in marketing and in the book world you know i think it's safe to say you know he's objective objectively you can say that he's freaking great at what he does so even operating at that guru level um you still have to get at it every day and do the work and show up. Like he said, that was his quote, show up. You have to show up and not worry about the outcome. Um, not be thinking about the outcome. I don't know if he said that, but that's at least what I think and how I feel. You can't be thinking about the outcome while you're doing the work. Like I don't want to think when I'm in the studio, I don't want to be thinking about how oh, this is going to sound like this when it's mixed and mastered and it's going to do this and that and the other thing. And, um, uh, all right, so the baby is up. The wife is calling. I will be right back. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, a new addition to the process, <laughs> a new layer. Uh, and every minute of every day layer to the process that are, uh, yeah, it's super different. I'd no longer, as I'm sure all the moms and dads out there are just like, yeah, 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 could have told you, bro, could have told you. Um, you all know um, that there is now no no longer the luxury of like, oh, you know what, I'm just going to spend four hours sort of um, pissing around in the studio and playing some music and maybe I'll come up with something and that will turn into a song or feel like recording a podcast now uh no so that is that luxury is a thing of the past i'm gladly uh, uh gladly uh take part in that not a problem at all um just now i have to really refocus when it comes to having like okay she's with mom so gonna have 90 minutes to do something now which is crazy. I think that's also probably why I'm focusing more on the mental side of things um, because I can. Like, I'm able to do that w without the bass in the hands, regardless of what else is going on in my life, um, rather than it being kind of instrument specific preparation. So, um, I also, you know, have to focus on the mental side of things. And maybe this will be a big payoff down the line if I'm working on this as much as I am right now um, in that I kind of have to psych myself up away from anything I'm doing musically speaking out of my studio um, have to psych myself up away from it rather than come down here and then get in the mood to do something I've really got to be like oh this 90 minute window is coming up so when minute one of that 90 minute window comes I really want to be in the best place I can um to start and to start, you know, extracting things as quickly as possible. You know, let the curiosity run and start extracting information and figuring out what needs work, you know, what's screaming for the most attention, where the deficiencies are. And again, like going back to Seth Godin, like just 
showing up and doing the work. And uh, now that's been kind of truncated and not only truncated, but fragmented as well. You know, right now, my daughter is four and a half months old. So we're in that she's napping through the day where there are like naps and feedings and, you know, wake windows. So it's all, it's very cyclical and she's not yet sleeping through the night. So there's that kind of lack of sleep element. And again, I know I'm preaching to the quiet in a lot of cases here. But I do think it's interesting to highlight exactly what's going on um, and how that affects everything else. And also how like the music and the career and stuff is not the number one priority anymore, even though it is obviously a huge part of my life and always will be. So it's big rebalancing act. Very, um, very precarious at times, I would say. And uh, now I have, <laughs> did I already say this? One of my AirPods in on my podcasting headphones so I can listen to it. I've got the baby monitor up on my desk so Chelsea can do her thing and, and get some time to herself. Yeah, it's a, it's a very precarious balancing act. And then also like the fact that I'm going away, that I'm traveling to do this, this studio recording in Spain means I'm going to be off duty, so to speak, for you know three and a half, four whole days basically. So that already is going to be a shock to have the time in the day. And um, hopefully this is great training for being able to use it well. Oh, excuse me. For being able to use it well and for being able to be very productive in the kind of limited time we have. And already two and a half, three days of recording is quite a luxury, um, especially when we're you know talking about uh, improvised music and you know, the kind of thing I'm trying to make, it's quite a luxury to have that amount of time. Um, so hopefully this, being able to focus for these like little 60 to 90 minute chunks that I am now will be able, you know, will have a great uh, effect on that. Let's see. Um, could be the thing, like Seth was saying, that you work so hard on and pour your heart and soul into and everyone goes, yeah, you know, so-and-so did it better. Yeah, I've heard that before or, what were you thinking? Like those kind of reactions and uh, putting those as far from my, uh, from my orbit as possible will be kind of priority number one. And that's why, you know, I'm surrounding myself with people that I know really well and, and a lot of them that I've known for a really long time. I cannot wait to get this cassette player. Uh, we have a boom box in the house now that has a cassette player in it. And um, I have... Uh, old cassette tapes of my first real kind of serious band leader band back in, uh, we've got to say like probably 97, 1997, 25 years ago. And, you know, playing gigs around London and the piano player that's on this record of mine that's doing this record, the Tom Corley who did the gig in Rotterdam in October is in that band. It was in that band, you know, in 1997. And he was a couple of years ahead of me at the Royal Academy of Music in London. I went there for a year, as some of you will know, uh, before I quit and went to Berkeley. So there were four years in the jazz program. I was in first year. Tom was in, he might even have been three years. He might have been in the fourth year. Whoa. I don't know. He, he definitely wasn't in the second year. So he was either two or three years ahead of me. And um, he was in my band, uh, as were a couple of ex-students, um, Paul Booth, was in my band. Um, the late Chris Dagley would do it on drums. Um, Ian Thomas, Mike Bradley, man, sorry, Pete Callard, who studied out here, I think, in LA or Berkeley or no, maybe MI. 
um, some great, really great musicians. And Tom did it a lot on piano, um, Gareth Williams, Mornington Lockett on saxophone. UK jazz people will, will know these names, but that was kind of the rotating cast of characters in the band back then. Uh, but Tom was kind of the, the main guy on piano. And we had a lot of gigs together. And I'll never forget, I think I told him this in Holland and he, he didn't remember doing it. But when I finished my one year um, at the Royal Academy of Music, like with most music programs, you give, um, yeah, sometimes at Berkeley, you give multiple recitals at the end of each semester or something. But this was like the the year end recital um, of my of my shit basically you know everyone in the everyone in the year got to put a band together of their choosing you could use the students you could use pro musicians i actually hired guitar player malcolm mcfarlane and uh, drummer mike bradley obviously they were not students <laughs> at the time um i think i had paul booth on saxophone and iwi and was it it might have been tom on piano actually i think i kind of wish they i wish it was uh that i wish there was a little bit of video footage of um, I really do, uh, just to remember exactly what happened at the time. But so basically you play your tunes, you know, you get like a 25 minute, 30 minute recital slot or something. You play three, four tunes and then you sit there and get critiqued by the panel of, you know, tutors slash judges, whatever. So the head of the school who I think has passed away now, Graham Collier. And then there was Trevor Tompkins and Jeff Klein, who's no longer with us. And maybe someone else, like a panel of three or four of the older teachers, and they let you have it basically. And yeah, maybe they loved it and they praise you, or maybe they hate it. In in my case, Graham Collier, I'll never forget this. Just laid into me. I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Like, and that's what I was. I was like, you f- "I'm like, I could, I, I really didn't understand it. I, so many points. And I, that's why I wish there was some video of that because I really want to remember the exact points he was making um, and, and pointing out. Because Tom Corley, you know, the whole of the, all four years sit there in the recital room watching. They're forced to, unfortunately. And then they get to chime in perhaps. Or maybe they didn't even get to chime in and Tom just did. And he said, look, man. Basically, they slated what I did, and it wasn't this, and it wasn't that. I, it, it didn't conform to what they, the, the kind of aesthetic they were, they were expecting or wanting, or I, I don't really don't know. Actually, I don't understand it. Um, anyway, so they did all the 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 shitty critique, and then Tom was like, "Hang on a second, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, this guy, meaning me, is the only person." in all four years of the Royal Academy of Music Jazz program that has a working band that is out there playing shows around London. And there, there, there's something to be said for that. Like audiences across London are showing up and filling up venues, known venues that major, that all the major uh, players in London would play, like my hero Lawrence Cottle. I heard him play in all of these venues when I was learning to play um, the same ones that I ended up playing, you know, with Tom in my band, the same ones he was referencing when he stood up for me in this recital critique. And, uh, he didn't remember this, uh, but I remember that vividly and thinking, oh, okay. Cause I was pretty down. Obviously you, 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 you know, you're excited to play and you get to play in front of all your peers and your, your, you know, the, the seniors and you're like, oh man, it's a big moment, you know, you're 17, 18 years old or whatever. And I wrote a bunch of music as well. It was original music as well as a couple of standards. And, uh, 
Tom was there kind of re-injecting some hope um, and validity into what it was I was trying to do, which even at 18 years old, I was trying to be a band leader and trying to be an artist. And um, anyway, all of this to say, there are tapes, cassette tapes of our band, I think mainly from the Bull's Head, which I believe is still there in Barnes in London. And uh, we did a lot of gigs there. That was like my 55 bar or my baked potato before I moved to New York or LA. That was like my regular gig. I had a regular gig every month there. You used to have to call the club on the phone. Like, this is how long ago it was. There was no email. There was no, like, if you wanted the gig, you had to call Dan, his name was. Big Dan. And you call and you say, hey, Dan, what's up? You call, like, you give it a couple of days after your gig. Hopefully everyone, you know, hopefully it was packed. And I remember it being super packed, those gigs. And making real money, probably the money, unfortunately, hasn't changed since. Uh, 25 years later, it's still like 100 pounds a man or something. But 100 pounds... You know, it's like $140 or something when you're 18 years old and you have a five-piece band and you get to pay everyone that kind of money and walk away from playing your own music. Oh, man, I'm smiling so much right now because that was such a hugely motivating time of my life to be like, oh, yeah, there's some, you know, and it wasn't about the money. That was just the bonus that you're like, are you kidding me? I get to do all this and there's going to be a little bit of money at the end of it. You know, learning how to walk out on that stage and lead the band and talk to the audience and put a set list together and write tunes and, 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 and surround yourself, surround myself with the best musicians I possibly could. You know, I was always the youngest guy. I'm not trying to brag or anything. I'm just saying like that was always my focus was like get better musicians than you because you are going to learn from them. Undoubtedly, you were going to learn from them. So I was constantly surrounded by great musicians. And I was so lucky to have Lawrence and to have been introduced to all of those, you know, like Chris Dagley and Ian Thomas and Mike Bradley and Tom Corley and Gareth Williams and Graham Harvey and Nigel Hitchcock and Gerard Presenter and Mark Nightingale and Jamie Talbot and Dave O'Higgins. I just like the laundry list of people that I got to go see live. Jim Mullen, you know, um, just it's a the Stacy Brothers. Just so many great musicians from the UK and living in London and playing a lot at that time was pretty huge. And uh, that that is still with me. I'm still I can still recall it like it's yesterday. You know, the Bull's Head, the 606, the Gun Tavern, the Red Lion. You know, uh, Acton Jazz. Just all of these spots. Um, you know, and I'm pretty sure a lot of them are still there as well. And then of course, like the big moments. Oh, someone's at Ronnie Scott, so we're gonna go to Ronnie Scott's. That's like the big spot to play. You know, and. Uh, yeah, there's great memories. And you see, that is how important it is to have someone like Tom in the... But that is like a priceless element to Tom's participation in this new music. See, I took like half an hour to get to the point. I'm always doing that. But, you know, went down memory lane along the way. But that is... That's exactly what it is. It is... Absolute. This is something you cannot learn at a music school, from YouTube, from Instagram. That that is completely unique and priceless. And and I think everyone has that. Of course, everyone has connections to musicians over many many years. And uh, the fact that it's kind of come full circle like that, and that he's just like 
an outstanding musician as well. It's not just like, oh, we're buddies, so this is going to be cool. He knows what's up. You know, one minute you think, holy shit, am I on stage with Brad Meldau? And the next thing is like, whoa, um, who invited Square Pusher to the gig? Because he's totally got this whole world of programming and synths and, and sound manipulation together. So it's musically, it's on a extremely high level of the highest level and when you put the personal thing together it's it's really huge that that you know being on stage with him and of course nico who i know a little less uh in terms of years but still i mean i think we must know each other at least a decade now at least at the very 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 minimum i think a decade which is which is not a bad chunk of time um when we were on stage in in Rotterdam, that was like, oh, this is going to be a thing. You know, it was like, it was, I gotta say, it was kind of a, a nightmare trying to put that gig together. You know, still pandemic-y and it, people like not really certain about moving around. And am I going to call this person? Oh, but then we're going to do that kind of thing. And then finding Nico and Tom at the right moment, right time, and just going there, playing tunes, older tunes, um, admittedly, because I did need something. I felt like I needed something, some glue to tie it together a little bit. But then even even with those tunes, we managed to get loose and play a little open, a little freer. And they were just changing lanes and t- making turns on the fly without having to be directed or rehearsed or anything. And like I think halfway through the gig, I was like, oh, this is the band right here. This is the new trio. So amazing feelings that I'm heading to Spain with with all of those factors this is just i can't i I cannot uh highlight enough how important that is and then then you factor in the other people that are going to be there oh man so good juan Pablo carro who i talked about you know engineer for all the way back from mystery to me 18 years how long we yeah 18 years or something ago plus we know each other from berkeley from 98 so i know him almost as long as tom um and we worked on a lot of records together a lot of records in New York. Like that was the crew, you know, he was my mix engineer for a decade on productions. You know, if you know the Justin Vasquez album, uh, Triptych that I've, I produced that record. (laughs) Okay. I gotta be, you know, again, I'm not trying to brag or, or, or I'm just genuinely think that record sounds good. Like uh, aesthetically, it's like, wow, it's a nice sound to hear in your headphones or in a big set of speakers. And that's Juan Pablo. He mixed that and he engineered it. And uh, oh, did oh, did Al, I think Albert um, Albert Loisink, who is so that was the same kind of crew from Mystery to Me. That was Albert Loisink was the recording engineer. We did that at Legacy, which is I think where they did the last Mike Brecker record. Um, yeah, so we did that at Legacy, and but Juan Pablo mixed that, and also Juan Pablo did all the overdub sessions with Adam Rogers. Um, Greg Watt came in and did some more overdubs, and we were working on that record for a while. But yeah, me and Juan Paolo worked on a lot of records together. Um, Bob Reynolds, Can't Wait for Perfect, I believe that is Juan Paolo mixed that. Um, Patrick Cornelius, Lucid Dream, uh, those are two records I produced. Nick Vianas, uh, Synesthesia, I believe he mixed that as well. What else did we do together? We did, um, God, like, yeah, basically. The whole time I was living in New York and working in the studio, I was working with JP. Um, so, yeah, again, that's like a, when you have that familiar face, it's like having a family member there, you know? It's like when, you know, I talked a little bit about the union and John Patatucci producing it 
um, which was it's a whole thing in itself. You know, a hero who became a friend who's now a, a peer and, and and is working on a we're working on a project together and he's producing my music. That's a whole thing. But also Chelsea was in the booth, and we weren't uh, we weren't married at the time. We we're almost married, about to be married. Um, weren't married at the time, but like having my fiance, soon to be wife, there is a huge moment as well. You know, it's a very supportive thing. Um, and I also have another couple of friends who may be around uh, the studio with us in Spain as well. Like my best friend from childhood might be there because he lives in Spain, and. Um, you know, a uh, great friend of mine from Denmark is coming down to hang. So it's, we're going to be kind of a, a, a very cool, open-minded group of people hanging out, all staying at the, at the place together. The studio has accommodation, which is something I love doing. If you can have the whole crew in the same place, you know, maybe shit, we come home from dinner at 1 a.m., you know, it's Spain, so you start dinner at 10.30. Maybe we come back from dinner one night at 1 a.m. and it's like, oh, you know what? kind of feel like recording and we have the place locked out so we have that option just to roll together as a group and uh do what we want when we want it so basically i'm I'm really hoping i'm taking the right steps to set myself up for the best chance of some sort of success but at the same time i completely expect failure on some level as well so hopefully the two will balance out and i'll get to present uh, I get to present you guys with something I'm very proud of. Here's the other thing I was thinking about today. Like I'm really sort of leaning into the documentary element of this trip as well. And I have a filmmaker coming. That's probably the person I am definitely the person out of the whole group that I know the least because we only just met last year on a, on a session um, in Denmark. Uh, but I got to hung out. Thankfully, it wasn't just an in and out. Um, high and by kind of thing so we got to actually hang for a couple of days and be around each other really like the cat i think his work is fantastic we got to go to dinner and like do the regular human stuff so i know he's going to be a massive asset obviously not just with the video but as a person as well just a very cool person to be around and, and work with so kind of leaning especially after seeing the rough footage of it only happens once from 10 years ago that rough cut that's on youtube now um, in its entirety kind of leaning into the documentary element of this recording session. So I figure at least at the end of the day, it'll be one of those things like, yeah, I went to Siberia and all I got was this lousy fucking T-shirt. At least at the end of the day, it'll be like, well, I went to make this record and maybe all I got was this documentary film and I didn't really get a record out of it. But there is, regardless of what happens, how no matter what the highs and peaks we get to or the lows and the, and the, the abysses of shit we end up in, um, it's going to be something, you know, it's going to be something to, to, um, to watch, to listen to, to see, uh, you know, to see a story unfold. Um, so it's kind of a, I guess making a documentary about it is kind of a way of saying like, no matter what happens, I'm going to have something at the end of the day, again, with no commercial aspirations whatsoever. Um, but that also helps with doing, like I've I mentioned before, about doing a pre-sale for this stuff and how I'm going to release it and not wanting to, it to be on streaming services. Um, I know I, some people gave some feedback about that and said that they want to, you know, they want to hear entire albums um, in one go. And I'm thinking about doing it in singles because I really don't think people, whether they want to or not, no matter how well-intentioned they are or not, I think a lot of people just simply don't have the time to sit there and listen to a whole album. So I am going to release it a couple of singles a month. 
uh, over time. Those will only be available for purchase at my website for a very reasonable price. I might add. Let's go back to maybe um, iTunes days of a song being ninety nine cents or one twenty nine, whatever they were, like something very reasonable. You know, maybe it's going to be two dollars for the two songs, two singles per month. I think that's pretty a pretty reasonable uh, way to do it. And of course, that will end up being a complete album uh, at the end of those five months heading into heading into the tour. Um, and yeah, there will be the documentary that goes with it, and it just it just makes it possible to do a pre sale and say, "Hey, I, I am I, I can actually promise you something at the end of this." You know, it could be a, a masterpiece of an album. I, I, I doubt that. Um, it, it might be okay though, uh, or it, it could be this kind of uh, really in-depth um it's, it's either way it's going to be this in-depth documentary thing with a story and a narrative and you getting to see how it all unfolds and all this stuff i'm talking about hopefully you listen to the podcast hopefully you're gonna uh be a part of the pre-sale and get get the documentary there's something i don't want to put on youtube in its entirety um it's also something i want to keep special you know for the fans for the people who are really engaged in it for the people who are following the podcast following along with the story it'll be on one of the levels um probably be on the second level of the pre-sale the first one will be like you know audio download mp3 and high quality flac files definitely going to do that because i know there are people out there like me who want to listen to high quality shit when they consume their music so definitely going to do high quality audio and i'm psyched about the digital booklet i wish i'd done digital booklets for all of my albums so that is something moving forwards that i want to do for all the albums in the past is create digital booklets um just to show you what was happening and uh you know, some technical information. I know I always love pouring over the, the liner notes and like who really played on which track, you know, um, which studio was it at, what were the days. I, I loved all that information in, you know, out, you know, vinyl album covers or in CD booklets, digipacks. I would pour over that information and as a result, have kind of an encyclopedic knowledge, at least of the stuff I'm into when it comes to all the details and that has that has been really useful throughout my career knowing which studio they were at having a picture of that room like where they did the drums and because i looked at the photographs and i saw where the microphones were over the drums and like oh they had three mics in front of the kick what's that about and then going down a rabbit hole and researching that and like comparing photographs of yeah you know, kind of crazy I, in, in case you hadn't noticed i really like music <laughs> so uh yeah I want to be able to offer that experience moving forward. It's like we're in this digital age, but I want to kind of, I want to inspire the curiosity. I think I don't see that enough right now. And and the feedback I get from younger musicians is not completely fueled by curiosity. And we have this, you know, in my discord server and in the telegram channel, we have many discussions about this. Um, there are, you know, there are both positive and negative sides to where we're at in the music industry now, but um, I think quite a lot of what I see, I would love to see more curiosity-fueled pursuits, I think. I think that would be healthy for all of us. That's inspiring when you see that and when you're aware of that and when somebody comes to you that they're curious. And whether it's about your stuff or not, it doesn't matter. Just the fact that they're curious and they ask you a question about, oh, so what about this Tony Williams album? Or did you know that you know Bob Malik played on the first Madonna record and he was in the studio with the engineer when they were doing the vocal? Like stories. I think the storytelling, the curiosity for me came from hanging out with people like Lawrence Cottle or Early Doors, you know, being 
mentored by him in the, in the best way possible. Not by, hey, this is C major and you can play, you know, sharp five sounds really hip. And blah. None of that shit. He never gave me a single lesson, never told me one thing about music ever. Yet he was 100% my mentor for a couple of years. And it was just the hanging and the being around the stories, being around that like camaraderie and you know the dressing room kind of vibe and the the car ride to the gig you know people carpooling and we go pick up david higgins or nigel hitchcock or someone and then there'd be stories flying around in the car going there and coming back and you know that kind of thing the curiosity thing that really lit a that, that really fueled the fire for me for the last 25 years and I'd like to be able to do that somehow. <laughs> Whether I do it or not, what I'd like to be able to do is to communicate how I feel to other people in that regard and show people how special it was for me and whether they like it or not. Some people, are, obviously, it's not going to be their thing. But if, you know, every time I do something, I always say to myself, oh, if I make a YouTube video, or I, I make an album or I, I record a podcast. I, I always say to myself, look, if there's one person out there that listens to this and thinks like, oh shit, I hadn't thought about that before. Or, oh man, I'm going through the same thing. It's good to know someone else's. Or, holy shit, you can do it like this. I hadn't thought about that. Or, man, I really disagree with that. Man, I got to do some more research and see why he thinks that way. You know, anything, if it, if it reaches one person like that, I think, okay, job well done. You know, zero would be a little crushing, but I, you know, I'm not shooting high here. One person would be more than enough for anything I do. So yeah, like we opened up the podcast with Seth Golden saying that you got to show up, got to do the work. You got to be, I think, prepared for the outcome, no matter what, sometimes it's going to be good. A lot of the time, most of the time, it's going to be bad. You know, where Seth talks about, and he, oh, I'm, I'm playing from a YouTube video from this behind the brand channel. Uh, shout out to them again. Um, you know, and they, like like he said, all the a lot of the videos you see of him being interviewed online via Zoom the last two years, you see all these books in the background, and they are mainly projects that failed. Maybe I got to start stacking up the records that I made before I put out my first one. Holy shit. I made a record with Dennis Chambers and Tim Miller a few years ago. It's still sitting on a hard drive. Never saw the light of day. That's not something that's reserved for the beginning of your career. That is something that could happen next month. You know, that's something that could be like, oh, you know, I mean, I hope not. And like I said, it'll be captured in the documentary, whether I like it or not. And doing a pre-sale is very motivating to to put the record out and do good. And I have I have very um, positive and optimistic uh, hopes for this for these sessions, which is great. But just to highlight, you know, a few years ago, I went and spent a lot of money and got amazing musicians in a room, and it didn't work out. And that's something that is not reserved for your early twenties. That could be when you're forty as well. So um, it's. I don't know what it is. It's probably time to end the episode. Um, what else is relevant today? I've been putting up a couple of short videos. You may be interested in them on YouTube, just on the channel, kind of based around little ideas, but short, no talking, just the music, maybe a little bit of uh, text in the description to help give it context. And the idea behind them is just that it's, hey, maybe a nudge 
Today's one was about right hand technique, and I took this Freddie Hubbard line, played it in 12 keys, but I was really focusing on my uh, right hand. Sorry, it's about right hand technique. I was really focusing in on my right hand. I'm dyslexic, by the way, in case you guys haven't noticed. I do that all the time. I say, hey, this is a two by, uh, uh, this is a 210 cabinet, and I'm looking at it, and it's a 212. I do that all the time. Um, but yeah, so today's one was right hand technique, little jazz phrase. It's just two and a half minutes long, it's just playing. It's really close up, good good look at my right hand so you can see what's going on. I've been throwing a few of those up, so the YouTube channel is kind of getting some uh, love these days, and it's all relevant. It's all just what I'm doing right now to get my right hand kind of up to scratch, and um, similar things for the left hand coming, and I'll put a, maybe put one of those out a week or something, so that's kind of relevant. Um, the line was from Iconic Lines, my book Iconic Lines. It was a Freddie Hubbard, uh, Freddie Hubbard lick. Um, super cool 251 thing so check that out that's on the YouTube channel um, that's it I think uh, plenty more stuff coming I'll probably do the pre-sale is coming this week gotta get it all lined up and ready to go I'm also working on another book I haven't put out a book in about six months and I've had all these ideas and I really want to bridge the gap between some really basic stuff I'm talking like thirds and fourths and sixths like just intervals stuff we practice without really thinking about it in exercises I want to bridge the gap between that and like where those things actually come out in my playing and, and where they could come out in your playing and how important those basics are to uh to kind of the end goal so that's kind of percolating away maybe that'll come out i don't know april perhaps let's see I'm kind of halfway through it right now and the next couple of weeks i might be able to finish it hand it off to chelsea and uh in-house production takes over and away we go um but yeah, lots going on. As always, appreciate you hanging out if you did this far. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll catch you guys, girls, bass players, musicians, coffee drinkers on the next one. Mm-hmm.